speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. Welcome back to the Arnamancy Podcast. I'm here today with Greg Marcus. Greg is a recovering workaholic and the creator of American Musar, a 21st century spiritual practice for an authentic and meaningful life. Greg offers guidance on how to lead a life of mindful harmony and spiritual integrity, drawing upon Jewish teachings and contemporary wisdom alike. He has a PhD from MIT and worked for 10 years as a marketer in Silicon Valley. Greg's latest book, The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance to the Soul Traits of Musar, has been praised for making Musar accessible and relevant for everyday people of any background. Today, Greg is a writer, speaker, coach, workshop facilitator, and stay-at-home father, as well as a full-time rabbi in training. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, Greg. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been fascinated by Musar for a long time. I've been reading about it and sort of, you know, practicing it poorly and sporadically for probably about ten years, I guess. And um, so it's really nice to talk to somebody who's spent so much time learning and teaching it. Uh, yeah, I guess you know the first thing is I suspect that nobody, very few of the listener, my, our listeners, have heard of Musar. So can you kind of start with sort of a Musar 101, like, what is it? Yeah, well, I'm always excited to meet someone who has heard of Musar, because I would say that 10 years ago, you know, Musar is a, well, first, let me start by saying Musar is a thousand-year-old Jewish spiritual practice that teaches us how to find those things inside that cause us to get stuck in the same situation again and again. And it offers a a path to balance and healing by taking mindful actions in everyday life. And Musar has always been a little bit of a niche within the, the Jewish world. And unfortunately, almost everyone who practiced Musar or taught Musar was, was killed in the Holocaust. So it was really only until the last decade or two that Musar started to become much more widely known. And whereas 10 years ago, probably 99% of Jewish people had never heard of Musar, you know, today, maybe 80% of Jewish people have never heard of Musar. So then outside of the Jewish faith, you know, those numbers are going to be are going to be that much smaller. So I have to say, Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to uh, meet someone and talk to someone who's been, uh, who's been uh, giving it a try and exploring it. Yeah, it was, I mean, I was introduced to it by a, a Jewish friend who uh, had come across Musar after reading Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and was basically like, hey, look at this. This is the same stuff. And, you know, we didn't, he didn't know at the time and I didn't know at the time that it was sort of an acknowledged path that like, that Benjamin Franklin's um, like, you know, uh, virtue chart thing was adopted by Musar uh, later on. But it was, uh, yeah, so it was just sort of a weird chance like that. Um, so Musar, like in terms of its history, it's actually, I, I, I'm a little confused about this too, because there's, 
So, so the word Musar itself sort of means like ethics, right? I mean, modern Hebrew, it means ethics. In the more um, biblical context, it can mean to instruct or to, uh, to change. Oh, okay. So, um, so it's really about, um, or it can also be, uh, yeah, so it's like to instruct or to change. And the idea is that um, one of the sayings in Musar is that the largest distance in the world is between the head and the heart. And there's a lot of things that we know in our head, like, oh, I really should do this, or oh boy, you know, speaking personally, I'm I'm never able to resist that fifth cookie. So it is <laughs> um something which I know in my head, but but in my heart, I can't seem to bring about that behavioral change. And so there was a, a famous rabbi, Musa rabbi, Rabbi Elialopian, who said that Musa is teaching the heart what the head already understands. And the oh. way that we teach those lessons is by is by taking action. So instead of just thinking about things, it's going to be, okay, after the fourth cookie, I'm going to get up and leave the table. Or I'm going to do something, you know, uh, you know, I'll make a plan ahead of time to prevent myself from having the fifth cookie. Okay. And I'm not going to try to have zero cookies because that's too big a change to make in one and one fell swoop. So generally, the Musar approach is, is small, gradual, incremental changes, and not the big cold turkey change. And um, and that allows you to sort of feel uh, a sense of accomplishment too, right? So like if you can make a small change, like if you can go a whole week and uh, and you only have the fifth cookie like three days a week instead of all seven days a week, you're like, oh, this is an improvement. I've improved a little bit. And then Gradually, you can get up to all seven days, and then you can work on not having the uh, fourth hamburger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. I've done. Uh, I used to do a lot of coaching for people who were. I'm a recovering workaholic, as you said, and so I used to coach people who were working too many hours. And the sure sign of disaster was someone who said, "Okay, starting next week, I'm going to leave work at five o'clock, and I'm not going to do any work." after that. And that lasts about a day or two. And then there's a huge amount of anxiety and disruption. And it's really uh, small, gradual changes uh, are the ones that, that make all the difference. Mm -hmm. So for me, for example, I said, I'm going to stop working at 930 at night. So I have time to decompress and get a good night's sleep. And I said, oh, I want to have more time with my wife, so I'll stop working at eight. And then I want more time with my kids, so I'll start working at seven. And within a year, I'd cut my hours by by a third um, mm -hmm. without changing jobs. But it was because it was these gradual changes that were inspired by by values, saying, you know, as important as work is, these other things in my life are more important. And that was before I knew about Musar, but that's very much a Musar type type of method. We take a value and then we um, make a change in our life to be more congruent or consistent with that value. So how did you uh, find Musar? You said that you started um, you started working on your workaholism. Is workaholism a word? I guess it is. Uh, you started working on yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you started working on your workaholism before Musar or before you discovered it. So what led you to, uh, to Musar? So my... Um, so my family, we uh, elected, my wife and I elected to 
do a, a family-based education for our kids. So we went as a as a group. Uh, instead of sending our kids to Sunday school, we went on Saturday afternoons as a family. And one year, the theme was Mosar. And I, I was like, um, wow, this idea of these small gradual changes and cultivating virtues within ourselves, virtues like humility and patience and truth and order. And I said, this is going to be life-changing for me. And then I did nothing for two years. <laughs> um, and I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and saying, boy, this is really going to change my life. And finally, I, I just wrote an email to uh, – one of the rabbis and said, hey, I want to teach Musar here. And she said, oh, that's great. And then I said, and I need to learn Musar first. And she said, oh, that's fantastic. And so she paid for me to take an online class in Musar. Mm -hmm. And then two months later, I was teaching my first class and I was reading everything I could get my hands on and the more modern texts and some of these more esoteric texts that you reference. And I created the first class, uh, which was called Work-Life Balance through Musar. And mm -hmm. we were supposed to meet just five times, but after five, we said, oh, let's keep going. And we met five more, and we met five more. And then after three years, I had a big, huge notebook filled with notes and stories, and that's what I used to uh, as a basis for writing the spiritual practice of good actions. Well, I have to say, uh, I really enjoyed your book, The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions. Um, you, know, I've, I've, you know, like I said, I've read a bunch of Musar stuff, and this was... I guess it sort of felt like the most modern approach to it. And I liked how you were really honest about stuff like, uh, you know, Musar, Musar is valid even for people who don't have, um, you know, like a, a theological basis, you know, like people who don't want to talk about God or people who don't want to talk about spirituality. They can still sort of look at some of the, um, the Musar traits and figure out how those are, uh, applicable to their lives. I, I, I thought that was a really beautiful way to put it. Um, and then one thing that I thought was super curious, I'm sure this is something that has occurred to you as well. I feel like every time you read a Musar book, uh, or even if you read Benjamin Franklin, and they always have these sort of lists of traits, and every single <clears throat> uh, author or Musar writer always talks about how, you know, this trait is the most important, so start with this. And every single one is different. So, like in yours, I think you had uh, humility was your was your first trait. Yeah, that's right. And then, um, like uh, Benjamin Franklin talks about temperance being his first trait. And then I can't remember, uh, you know, but it seems like you know every 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 uh, author talks about which trait you should practice first. And when you read their their reasoning, their reasoning is always really sound. But I'm wondering, is that mostly inspired by the the trait that is so i mean maybe it's the trait that is most obvious to the individual like this is one that i really have to work on but the lessons you learn through tackling that particular trait uh help you with others perhaps yeah so all of these traits are are interconnected mm -hmm. and like um you know it's one of the the, the I don't know a lot about comparative religions, but one of the things that surprises people about Judaism is it's very explicit that more than one thing can be simultaneously true, even if they're somewhat contradictory. Mm -hmm. So, one Musar master might say, start people with anger, because everybody deals with anger, and um, so people can relate to it immediately. 
And someone else might say, oh, but anger is really a powerful emotion. And if you start with that, it's, it's going to be um, you know, hard to make a change. So start with something else. So for me, um, I wanted to start with humility because we're at the center of our own story. Mm-hmm. And in Musar, humility isn't about being meek and self-effacing. It's about finding your proper place in the universe. And like all of these, um, some people call them character traits. I call them soul traits. But whatever you call them, one of the features is, is having too much of the trait is just as bad as having not enough. So if we have too little humility, we're arrogant, we don't pay attention to the needs of other people. But if we have too much humility, maybe we're not stepping up into a situation where our leadership is really required. Right, we might be and too so, meek. Yeah, exactly. We'd be too meek. We could be, you know, a little, little bit of a doormat, and mm-hmm. that's not, that's not. Um, that's not what it's all about. It's about, you know, finding your proper place. And um, so it's uh, so for me, I thought humility was a really important place to start because we need to understand um, our propensity to make everything about ourselves. And even if you're kind of too meek and and dormatty, it can still be all about yourself, except it's not about how great you are. It's about how much of a victim you are and how unfair life is and all these things were done to you. And it's realizing um, uh, Rabbi Ira Stone, one of the uh, modern Musar teachers, uh, he characterizes Musar as learning to bear the burden of the other. It's learning to bear the burden of other people. Mm-hmm. And if we're too self-focused, we're going to miss out on that that primary mission. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I love Ira Stone. I actually have one of his books right here. I keep it by my desk all the time. <laughs> ah. um, yeah, uh, that's, that's super interesting. I guess, like, that idea of balance, I guess, uh, you know, when I think of Benjamin Franklin talking about temperance first, uh, that's sort of, you know, I guess that's sort of the approach I've taken because temperance talks about it's mostly centered on balance. And I don't know if that's uh, really equivalent to any of the traits that you talk about in your book, but um, but it seems to me that that a lot of times when you look at some of these, you think to yourself, like, how could there be balance? You know, like, um, well, I mean, the, the, uh, the example that you were bringing up is loving kindness. Like, how could, how could you possibly have too much loving kindness? Um, but then when you talk about it, you make a really good point. You're like, too much loving kindness is like doting, like helicopter mom almost, or, <laughs> or like, um, not letting people have their own space or ignoring that, uh, ignoring that, you know, it actually even could be just ignoring that you yourself, that the individual needs solitude in addition to all the people around them. Like you don't want to be attached to the hip at everybody with everybody. But I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, how do you look at that? The, the, the more like some of these traits are so good or sort of, shown off as like such obvious virtues like how can you have too much of them yeah well i think um loving kindness is a great is is a great example and a, a great great way to talk about that because as you say um what could be wrong with loving kindness uh-huh. and 
I think it's important to define what we mean by loving kindness. Um, loving kindness is a trait which has to do with um, going going the extra mile for other people. You know, one of the one of the sayings associated with what, loving kindness is the world is built on loving kindness. So it's a way of sustaining someone else without thought of reward or getting anything in return. Mm-hmm. And it really needs to be kind of going beyond the usual. So if, for example, someone is kind of carrying two bags of groceries and they're juggling them and they're walking next to you going in the same direction – Helping them out wouldn't necessarily be considered an act of loving kindness because you're going in the same direction. Whereas the clear act of loving kindness is if the person's on the other side of the street and they're going in the opposite direction that you're going, you run across the street and you help them and you help them get to their car or wherever they're going, even though it's clearly out of your way. Mm -hmm. So it's these real kind of above and beyond Uh, kinds of acts, which really can make the world a special place. So what's wrong with that is if I'm running across the street and I am helping someone else with their groceries and I end up missing my job interview and not Mm. getting my job, that's an example of too much loving kindness because I've given more of myself than is healthy for myself to give. If I'm... uh, it's like I, I had a friend who was a, a social worker, and he said when they would, and they did a lot of hospice work and a lot of work with people who had substance abuse, and they always asked people, what's your self-care regimen? And people who didn't have enough self-care, they knew were going to burn out because that work is so hard and challenging and difficult, that there needs to be a balance between this giving to other people and taking care of ourselves. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What um, and then uh, at the end, the the last two, or maybe they're not the last two. I should probably look at your table of contents. Um, you talk about a couple of the soul traits that are kind of like difficult to put into words and difficult to understand because they have such a level of abstractness to them. And uh, I guess I'm thinking of uh, uh, equanimity and um, and then the the last two that you you kind of split in two, which I think is usually described as like fear of God or, or something of that nature. Yeah. So, um, so equanimity and, um, the, uh, the last one is a, is a soul trait, which the Hebrew word is a word that, that goes yira, mm-hmm. which means either fear or awe. And I decided to split that into two. So I have one chapter on, fear of God and another chapter on awe of God or awe of majesty. And that one is very challenging for a lot of reasons. A lot of people don't think about the kind of divine in their their life that way. So that whole framework is challenging. And then equanimity is challenging for a different reason because that's kind of a, the direct translation from Hebrew is calmness of the soul. It's kind of being able to stay on an even keel, not getting too high, not getting too low. But that's one of these things where it's like, wow, that's great in theory, but I I certainly, before I practiced Musar, and to a large degree still today, have a hard time doing that. So there it's about, well, what is causing me to kind of 
you know, get too excited or get too despondent and become too reactive. And often that's from something else that's that's out of balance. So the 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 lack of equanimity is a symptom for something else which is going on uh, some other deeper imbalance. And so the real issue is um, I need to get my patience in balance or I need to get my order in balance. And sometimes I can work on equanimity directly just by meditating or by doing some other things. Um, but those are uh, that was that was one where when I first learned about Musar, my life was so roller coastery. I'm like, okay, that's it. And I got the book and I flipped to the equanimity chapter and and I just had no idea what it was talking about. I just it was all too. Uh, all too abstract for me and it was like well you just calm this and you do that and I realized that I, I had to work my way up to that I needed to get myself versed in that, that whole vocabulary and that whole way of of thinking and seeing the universe before I was ready to to engage with that I don't know if that makes any sense to you or if this has been another one of these kind of left field type of explanations. No, actually, that makes incredible sense to me. And it makes me feel better about uh, not being awesome at equanimity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it sort of seems like it might be um, on the, you know, where like learning how to balance each individual soul trait is sort of the beginning as you kind of get closer to balance. It's like you, you get the different Legos that build into equanimity a little bit. So equanimity might be something that you learn to kind of notice and work on after you've discovered how balance can start to feel. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of, that's a really good way of putting it. And, you know, remember that we are kind of building you know, if we're like building the the two thousand piece Death Star Lego, you know, thing, you know, we might be like a few hundred pieces in when we start to when we start this journey. So it's not like, you know, we need to be three quarters of the way there, but if we just start getting some successes, like um, for example, one one of my early classes, there was a friend of mine and she was working on patience and she was um so I think you and I both live on the, the West Coast, but I, mm -hmm. I grew up on the East Coast, and this person was a real East Coast rageaholic type of driver. And she said, okay, I'm going to work on patience. And her kids were kind of saying, oh, good luck with that, Mom. And she said, okay, what I'm going to do <laughs> is I'm going to let every car merge in front of me on the highway you know, during my commute. Everybody gets in, you know, without. And she said it completely changed her commute. You know, she was just happy, calm, listening to music. And then that that patience started spilling over into other parts of her life as well. Because mm -hmm. she, and she became a bit more patient with her kids. So it's oh, when we that's interesting. It's kind of like you you discover some part of your life where where that soul trait is obviously out of whack and just by working on it in that part, it starts to kind of bleed over. Yeah. And there's a couple explanations for that. If we take the spiritual explanation, what the Musar masters would say is that each time you're taking an action, each time you're allowing a card emerge in front of you, you're making a small imprint in your, your soul. 
And as you create and as you make that change in your soul, then when you enter this completely different situation, that your your changed soul is the is the is now addressing that new situation. Now, what a neurobiologist would say is that you're create by taking this different action, you're creating new pathways in your brain, and you're forging new neural connections. And then when you show up in this new situation, this new neural pathway is now available to you, which and you know which allows you to manage your kids in a way with less yelling. Mm-hmm. So either way, um, I, I think it's quite remarkable that this kind of change, that this this uh, behavioral change paradigm, which was put forth hundreds and thousands of years ago, is very consistent with what we know about neurobiology and behavioral change today. Yeah, for sure. That is really fascinating. It reminds me of um, of one of the the Musar concepts that I think we should we should talk about a little bit, which is the 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 warring inclinations, you know, the the yetzer hara and the yetzer hatov, uh, mm-hmm. like the the good the the good inclination and the evil inclination. Yes, can you uh, talk about those a little bit? Yeah, so so the idea is that we have these these we're driven by this this battle between these two inclinations, and I should I think the evil inclination is is a is the best translation of the Yetzer Hara that I know of, but it's very, we have so much like baggage around the world evil that we think of like murderers or terrorists or, you oh, know, yeah. these sort of horrible things. And that's really not what this is with it, what this is getting at. This is more like, um, it's much closer to what, what Freud would call the id. It's our selfish impulses. It's our, um, you know, it's our anger, it's our sexuality. It's your it cookie is, monster. Yeah, it's our cookie monster, right, exactly. <laughs> okay. And these things are not, you know, evil in and of themselves, but only if they are left unchecked. So being attracted to someone, you know, lust is not bad in and of itself. It's bad when we allow it to um, drive our actions. You know, if we're mm-hmm. married and then we get gets uh let things go too far with someone outside of her marriage that's that's the issue it's the attractive attraction itself is just part of a part of who we are yeah so the then, are hard. oh sorry yeah. i was just it was that reminded me of something that uh i think uh rabbi stone talked about where he says that you know the 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 yitzer hara the 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 cookie monster inclination is still important because without it we wouldn't do we wouldn't do so many things that are necessary to be human, you know, like we wouldn't, we wouldn't strive to provide comfort for our families. We wouldn't, um, we would never reproduce, you know, there would be all these things that, that all these important parts of life that we'd miss out on. So it, it, you know, he sort of talks about why, why that, um, I mean, maybe a good name for it would be like the animalistic inclination. Yeah. Yeah. That is, um, that's very much in in the right the right neighborhood, and there's actually a famous there's a a book of Jewish commentary called the the Talmud, which um, which has a lot of you know very deep wisdom. And there's a story in there where the rabbis had trapped the the Yetzer Hara, and they trapped the evil inclination, and they were so happy and excited. And then they noticed that nobody went to work, and nobody fixed 
fixed their roof and the chickens stopped laying eggs and nobody got married. Um, <laughs> and so that is very much along where um, Rabbi Stone, I think, was getting the, the teaching he was telling you. These are very much intrinsically a part of who we are. And uh, I'll give you another example of that in just a minute with a more contemporary example. But I want to spend a couple minutes on the Yetzer, Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination. And that's our empathy. That's our compassion. That's our ability to socially connect with other people and our conscience. And part of what we're trying to do in Musar is to help the Yetzer, the good inclination, guide the evil inclination. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you're a, a Star Trek fan, but in one of the original Star Trek a- um, episodes, Captain Kirk gets split into a good Kirk and an evil Kirk. Do you do you remember this episode? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Isn't there uh, there are like goatees on the the bad guys? That was a different evil episode. That was an evil <laughs> younger, but, but Kirk gets split into two, uh-huh. and the bad Kirk, he's. Um, He's, you know, fighting with people and drinking and he's trying to assault one of the women. And the good Kirk is very kind and patient, but he can't command anymore. He mm-hmm. can't make any decisions. And Spock makes this big, long speech, you know, about it's the dark side that really provides this kind of spark of leadership. And it's only a whole person that can really, you know, be an effective captain. And that's true for all of us. You know, we need to be whole. And um, that's also another definition of Musar is this idea of how can we become whole? How can we heal those 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 gaps or those parts inside so that that we can be a whole person? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, that's. I, I like that balance idea. I think it makes a lot of sense and it sort of brings sort of this feeling like it 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 relieves us from some of the guilt of having like those animalistic inclinations. Like, why do I want these things? Why, why are these desires important? Or why was I made this way? You know, why do I have to like, listen, <laughs> I guess is the, the, the question that, that, that you have, you know? And, and then, um, uh, I, I, one of the Musar books I read sort of described the, uh, the uh, animalistic inclination is being like the really loud voice, the one that's easy to listen to. And then your good inclination is the one that's just sort of whispering. It's, it's small and it takes effort to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, a lot of like they, they've mapped, you know, there's all kinds of work that's been done in the last few hundred years about mapping different parts of the brain and those behaviors that, um, are associated with the evil inclination, they map to the most primitive parts of our brain that go all the way back to reptiles and and before. And these sorts of fear neurons, they have kept us alive through tens of millions of years of evolution. Mm-hmm. So the good inclination, that is the youngest part of the brain. That's like the prefrontal cortex, the uniquely human part of the brain in the animal kingdom. And those different parts of the brain literally are in opposition to one another. So it's not surprising that, yeah, these, these, fe- you know, these fears, these, these anger, these other things, these are necessary for survival. But as a human, we can't tell the difference between what's a predator um, and what's just somebody in the office being a jerk. 
our, right. our brain reactions might be the same. So mm -hmm. we need to, so we get this really fast, like protective impulse that comes on. But by training the good inclination and by training ourselves, we can prevent those, those sorts of initial reactions actions from from taking over and kind of creating a mess that then we have to dig, dig ourselves out of okay i like that um so uh you have here in the in one of the emails you sent me you talk about um four musar assumptions and i'm wondering are those assumptions that musar makes or assumptions that other people make about musar right so um uh so when I was uh, before, when I was in the corporate world, I was a, a product manager. And so if we were doing like financial forecasts, we would create assumptions. Mm -hmm. And so because I wanted this to be accessible to people who didn't have like years and years to go to school and get a big Jewish background, they, um, I created assumptions, which maybe you agree with them, maybe you didn't agree with them. But if you followed them, they would help you drive your Musar practice. So the four assumptions are uh, one we've talked about, we're driven by the conflict between the good inclination and the evil inclination. The second assumption is, is that we all have a divine spark, but it's occluded by our baggage. The third is, is that we have all, the, we all have the same soul traits, but we have different amounts of each. And the fourth one is that we all have free will, but it's not always accessible to us. And if we assume these are true, they help us um, kind of interact and guide with, um, kind of do our Musar practice. So at each chapter, I start, I revisit one of those assumptions. So for patients, you know, I can't remember which one was in that chapter, but I would talk about one of those assumptions and how it, how it relates to patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like... Oh, I see what you're talking about. Right, right at the beginning of each chapter. So for, well, let's look at equanimity. The, the, okay. The confusing one. I mean, I guess you know, the difficult one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're going to be we're advanced students here. Yeah, we're, uh, we this isn't our first Musar rodeo, so we can take a look at equanimity. Yeah. So the assumption for equanimity is we all have free will, but it is not always accessible. So. When you're talking about free will in that way, are you sort of saying that we only get to practice free will when we are mindful of the inclinations and what they're saying to us? That's, I think that's partially true. Um, I think, you know, there are certain times where we're always just going to do the right thing and we're never going to think about it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I stop at stop signs. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's no real free will that's involved there. It's just an automatic something that I do. Um, or as I said earlier, I will tend to just keep eating cookies, even though I know intellectually it's unhealthy for me. Mm -hmm. um, but and so there, maybe that's the evil inclination has has the upper hand. But there are other times where we're balanced. We're like right on the edge. And that's where those are times where our free will comes into play, where we could be, um, you know, maybe there's some type of cookie, which I really don't like, and it's easier for me to resist. So it's like, well, do I kind of eat this cookie, which tastes bad, even though it has sugar, you know, <laughs> or do I, 
<laughs> you know, or do I, or do I hold off? Um, but free will is an interesting one because um, if I think about it, like if I get, you know, somebody in my family does something which, and I react, I might uh, speak angry words. I might start yelling. I might get angry. And in, while in theory I have free will, uh, the, it doesn't feel like it at the time. And the words are out of my mouth before I even realize it. And then I'm like, oh, geez, you know. Now I gotta. Now I have to make amends mm-hmm. um, and deal with that. And so through the Musar practice, so by first of all just acknowledging that, rather than saying, "Oh, I, you know, I should have been able to stop myself from saying that. I'm such a jerk," and blah blah blah. Just saying, "Okay, you know, I I lost it there. You know, I did not. I did wasn't able to tap into my free will. So what can I do?" So that next time around, um, I can be less reactive. And one person who I was I was coaching was talking to and had this issue where she had like a twelve year old son and he was always like questioning everything and asking all of these ridiculous questions and she would get angry and frustrated with him. And you know, we thought that counting to three before she answered would be too big a too big a step to take. But if we said, well, what if we just count to one? <laughs> just count to one before you answer. Uh-huh. And then she found out pretty quickly that she actually was able to count to three. And just having that little bit of space, it was Rabbi Rabbi Pear called creating a little space between the match and the fuse, that, that let a, us develop a second strategy where she would try to answer with humor. So if he'd start disagreeing that the sky is not blue, rather than getting frustrated, she'd start, you know, oh, it's yellow. Oh, it's, per-, you know, and then it would become like a fun game rather than like this little mental tug of war, you know, mm-hmm. rather than um, let's see how much I can pull mom's chain and really get her going. Yeah. It became a, a fun way of bonding. That's uh, that's so fascinating. Like you've mentioned um, sort of, you mentioned techniques like this uh, a couple times now, but I mean, like, I knew that one of the core um, practices in Musar is to sort of break things down into into smaller steps, right? So it's it's kind of like incremental change is the best way to approach these. Um, but but as you describe, like actual like practical Musar techniques. You, you, the, the increment thing is really taken seriously. Like you really are like, well then let's try an even smaller increment. And it's almost like any, any increment is, is, is beneficial then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any incremental, and this is very much my perspective and this is one of the, the kind of core ways that, um, I practice Musar and I teach Musar is you really, because the, the first step is really the whole game. Mm-hmm. And if you can really recognize that, um, you know, I, it's, it's a lot better than it used to be, you know, instead of having, um, arguments at the dinner table, six nights a week, we had arguments only two nights a week or only four nights a week. That's huge. That's uh-huh. a huge change. And it doesn't mean that it's it's over. You know, it's like, do you then say it's kind of like, uh, you know, dieting? It's like, oh, I kind of had, um, 
you know, I'm not like a dieting kind of guy, but the the cliche is, oh, I, I eat one extra thing. Oh, the hell with that. I'll just eat the whole a whole bag of chips because I had two. Yeah. You know, and we need to recognize that, um, you know, if you normally eat five and then you eat two, that's better. You know, mm-hmm. try to try to eat one the next day, and that's um, that's yeah, that's and I think that's. So and that also makes it super achievable for people. Yeah. It's like any of us can kind of make these small changes, but it's it's actually very scary to think about being able to change and there's a lot of responsibility. Like as soon as you realize that you can make a change, you know, I th- I think a lot of people let, that's just like too much responsibility and they're not sure they want to take that on at least subconsciously. But it's really not, um, and that's the evil inclination, which, which just really wants you to stay kind of in the same the same place. It doesn't want to give up control to the good inclination. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's really worth it. It's a much richer and more complete and more whole way of living. How do you think? What's a what's a good way for somebody to um, to learn to listen? for the good inclination or to learn to see that it's there. That's a really good question. And I think um, that's one of the nice things about, about Musar um, and what I try to do in my book. And I think other people try to varying degrees in their books and approaches is um, I try to lay out a roadmap that you can follow so you start with a little bit of background information and then in, in the roadmap that I present, you start with humility mm-hmm. and you just start observing yourself and okay, well, how much am I, you know, um, okay, I go to a lot of meetings at my job. Am I always talking? Do I always need to make the first comment? Do I always need to have the last word? Or am I the kind of person who's afraid to ask questions? And am I always sitting back and I have ideas, but I'm afraid to share them or something like that? So understanding like what, how you show up in the world is, is the first place you get started. And then you just um, – then you say, okay, well, if I'm afraid to ask questions – how can I begin to ask a question? Maybe I'll ask a question after the meeting. I'll go up to the the speaker and say, hey, I had this idea. What do you think of it? And then you, by, um, by t- taking that action, that's when you can start to notice the good and evil inclination sort of in, in play in your life. Mm. But I think it starts in the very much the practical and the everyday and then these assumptions or these these other kind of factors, you you sort of begin to notice them. But I'm a huge believer in in get going and start making changes, and then kind of learn by doing and learn by by going along. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, that's that's an interesting approach to stuff. Uh, okay, I have another question then, and this is sort of maybe more about kind of like your personal practice. What does a day of Musar uh, look like for you? Yeah, great question. So. Um, it, Musar is is a practice, which means it's something that you do every day on a regular basis, kind of like people who do yoga as a practice. It's I have a daily routine that I follow. So um, 
I, I begin the day by looking at a mantra or a recitation phrase, which is connected to my to the soul trait that I'm working on. So, for example, um, let's say I'm working on patience. The mantra might be, this too shall pass, and I have the strength to get by until it does. Because patience, it's about kind of an enduring and uncomfortable situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about staying calm. If you're calm, you don't need patience. Patience is what we need when we're, we're agitated about something. So I'd start my day, and I would kind of read that out loud. I'd contemplate it for a couple minutes. Uh, sometimes I might even like set the phrase to like some some popular music tune that I like and I'll sing it to myself when I'm in the car. Mm-hmm. And that kind of attunes me to kind of look around and pay attention to my life and see where, where my patience is being tested. So that's part one. Part two is I'll pick a part of my life where I will focus on making a change. And again, I gave the example earlier of my friend who would let other cars in in traffic. Or maybe if my issue is I'm, I'm being too patient and I'm just waiting for things to get better, maybe the way I'm going to work on this is I'm going to you know, start working on my resume because I'm being too patient about, about my job situation. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that I'm going to do is I will journal uh, at the end of the day, and I will write down, you know, a couple of words or a couple of sentences about where my patience was challenged during the day, and then how I responded. You know, I dealt well with it, or I didn't deal well with it. Okay. So, um, and journaling, I'll, I'll just say that some people are really into journaling, some people are not. That's an area where a lot of people get tripped up, um, and they don't journal, and they still get something out of it. I think my journaling is uneven, um, but I know that when I am journaling, that that helps me grow the most quickly. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. That I think that actually sounds like a pretty reasonable amount of, like in terms of a daily practice, that sounded very doable. Like, yeah, it is. It is absolutely doable. You know, it's kind of like. Uh, you know, my father's a big poker player, and he says, hold them, you know, you learn the hold them poker, you can learn the rules in five minutes, but it takes a lifetime to master. So mm-hmm. it's not, it's not actually that, that hard to, to do the steps, but, um, you know, we just, we just need to do them. And, uh, and yeah. then we get to experience the, we get kind of a virtuous cycle, where you start to f- notice your life changing. And it's like, wow, that was kind of cool. Yeah, and you never really finish with Musar, do you? It's sort of an ongoing practice. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's a it's a lifestyle. <laughs> Greg, this has been a really fascinating look into Musar, and I have to say your approach to it and the way that you present everything, it makes it so um understandable. Like uh, you know, in terms of spiritual practices, uh, one of the things that that really attracts me about Musar is it doesn't have it doesn't have these like grand claims. You know, it's not like you know we will teach you how to sit in meditation for twelve hours and lead you to you know you know unbelievable stages of enlightenment or whatever. It's more like um, it really is like this is how you act well in the world. This is how you turn into a good human being. 
Yeah, and um, that's that's exactly right. And we all um, there's a there's a Yiddish word which you may have heard of. It's it's mensch. Yeah. It's like a it's like a, a outstanding person. I opened the book writing about uh, my mother's first cousin, and he was a mensch because he. You know, he showed up to everybody's wedding. He never said a bad word about anyone, and he always tried to look on the bright side. Mm-hmm. And he's just like one of these people that everybody admired and wanted to be around. And that's, um, we all have the capability to do that. Um, but we, through various life experiences or whatever, maybe we weren't exposed to, 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 what we needed in order to express that in ourselves. And, and Musar is, uh, is like a manual. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the how-to, how do we go about being that kind of outstanding, outstanding person. Yeah, and I think another thing I really like about it is just through practice, through observing um, how difficult it is to make grand sweeping changes in yourself, it allows you to have more kind of um, – compassion or I guess loving kindness to the people around you just because you're like oh well they're trying you know they're they've they've made an incremental improvement you know you you know if you have a if you have a friend who's a complete jerk uh and they say one nice thing in a day you can be like well that's an improvement over yesterday that's, that's right a, that's a bad friend hopefully nobody has friends like that yes <laughs> but, yes but, but uh but you know but, it's, um, it, it allows you to be um much more I guess kind of like forgiving and understanding of people because you see how difficult it is to to create change in yourself or to listen to your own good inclination all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah, that's right. And it can help you um it can help you like not internalize like someone if someone else is being a jerk, it can help you realize that that's them being a jerk. It's not me having screwed up in some way mm-hmm. which invites them to treat me that way yeah you know that's not um and having you know a stronger kind of foundation of wholeness and self-esteem is really is really important uh, i will say as you were talking it reminded me of all of the times that like i've someone's been in one of my classes and then i've met their spouse and they say oh thank you so much my my husband slash wife is so changed by like, and they're so much, you know, easier to deal with, or they're so much happier, or they're such a better, like, father, you know, since he started doing Musar. So it, it, you know, when that started happening, I started thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm really onto something. And then I would ask my wife, is this true? And she's like, oh, absolutely. You're, you're <laughs> much, much better husband since you started doing this. So, um, so that's the external validation that um, that this really can help. What about the effect that it's had on on your community? Like, um, I assume that most of your uh, Musar students are part of the same like synagogue or something. Yeah, um, a lot. I mean, I've taught a number of classes at my synagogue. I've taught classes at at other places, um, other synagogues or community centers. Um, you know, I would say like even within like the synagogue setting, it is still a niche. It's not something that a lot of people flock to, but f- um, for people who are really interested in personal growth, personal transformation, um, 
you know, sometimes people are looking for kind of another way, like within the Jewish community, it's like, well, I want to find another way to kind of access some of these teachings. Mm -hmm. So people come to it for a, a variety of different, variety of different reasons. And what about people who aren't Jewish? How could they, or, or aren't part of a synagogue, how could they um, approach some of the Musar teachings? What would you think would be the best, uh, best place for them to look? Well, I, um, I certainly, I mean, my approach in writing the book is, was how can I make this as accessible as possible? And as I described, like the assumptions, the whole purpose behind doing that was to allow people who didn't have a, a, a big Jewish education to access these teachings. And there's a lot of Jewish people who didn't kind of grow up, maybe they just had one Jewish parent, or they had two very secular Jewish parents, so they never kind of went to Sunday school or anything, and they just didn't know much. And um, a lot of like the reviewers on Amazon, they have Christian backgrounds or other backgrounds. So I'm I'm in very big danger of kind of over-promoting myself, but I do think that I tried to... Um, I tried to really make this this teaching um, accessible, and a lot of like these things like patience and truth and order. These are very universal concepts, and I worked hard to use modern examples to make them easy to relate to. Yeah. Um, well, I agree. I think your book actually is pretty approachable for um, for secular people and non, non-religious people, but uh, also... I've read so much Musar that I might not be the best judge of that. Um, but uh, it is a really amazing book. But why don't can you um, tell people uh, how to find you online and where to find your books, your book? Yeah. So um, my book is available. It's The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions. Probably the best place to find it is on Amazon. But I know it's also sold in Barnes & Noble and a lot of other online and um occasionally retail outlets. Um, my website is AmericanMusar.com, um, M-U-S-S-A-R. And uh, on the website, there's actually a free quiz that you can take where you can look across the 13 soul traits in the book and you can uh, get an idea of what's your level of balance across each of these traits. And that's a tool uh, that can help you sort of evaluate what what it is that you might need to work on and focus on to help you um, to help you uh, kind of get started on your journey. All right, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really grateful that you took um, took the time to do this and to talk to me about Musar. I'm really looking forward to you know, I mean, my, my own Musar practice, it, it, you know, it's kind of come and gone, but I, I feel like your book has provided me with a lot of uh, inspiration to kind of get started again and kind of dive back in. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.